Hi, this is Dr. Christopher Perrin, and welcome to another episode of the podcast, The Christopher Perrin Show. In this particular episode, I want to talk about a way in which classical schools still retain the remnants of a progressive means of educating, ways in which the progressive model, which was introduced about 100 years ago, still hangs on and is present in most of our classical schools. Well, why is this? It's understandable. It's because as we seek to renew classical education, this old, traditional, tried, proven way of doing education, what education really is, as we try to renew it, it takes time. And we have been formed and shaped by a hundred years of progressive and modern education. And it's not that all of what's been done over those last 100 years is foolish or is not worth considering or doing, but much of it is. So this makes it uh, difficult because we have to filter. We have to ask the question, what did those progressive educators do that despite our general disagreement with their philosophy and pedagogy, what did they do that nonetheless was good and helpful and actually is aligned with what we do as classical educators? Because it's not so simple as one being completely black and another approach being completely white. In fact, many aspects of classical education have been retained by progressive modern educators. So think about a Venn diagram in which there's some overlapping area between classical and modern educators. There's some things that we share in common, some things with which we agree. But there are also some things with which we disagree. Well, I would like to describe one way in which something we probably don't want from progressive education is nonetheless still present in the way we often do classical education. And this is the way we schedule. It's the way we arrange learning. It's the way we arrange our day, shape and form our day, if you will. It's the liturgy of our schools. And it's also the amount of learning we expect students to do in a school year, in a school semester, in a school month and a school week and a school day. Generally speaking, we try to do too much at once. This is the problem. We pile it on. And so now I'd like to read to you something I wrote because I'll say it much better than if I just kind of speak off the cuff. I'd like to speak to you, read to you about piling it on, why classical schools have too many periods and teach too many subjects. Now, you can read this article on my substack at christopherperrin.substack.com. But I will read it here, and of course, I will make some additional commentary. So, over the years, a question has continued to rise before me like a puppy on alert after hearing a strange sound. Now, I have a dog, and you probably do too. Most of us seem to have a pet. And you know how dogs are, and even cats, when they hear a strange sound, ears perk up and they look around. I've been put on alert. Why do we organize a school day over eight periods? And why do we teach up to 12 subjects at a time to students, sometimes all in one year? Like so many of our modern school practices, it turns out that this is not a traditional classical practice. The classical tradition insisted upon multum non multa, which means much, not many, as a meaningful approach to study. 
We modern people, however, have fallen in love with the buffet line, the educational buffet line. We like to sample many kinds of foods and fill our plates with small servings of nearly everything. I actually like buffets or a really good potluck. It turns out that my church hosts a potluck every Sunday except for some weeks during the summer. And I can scan the line of dishes as I approach the line to make sure I don't fill my plate with some good X when there is some scrumptious Y yet to be had ahead. I usually succeed in gathering a remarkable collection of about eight to ten different dishes, samples of them all. It turns out that a buffet line can be a marvelous way to eat, but not such a great way to study. To study and learn, well, humans have learned that it's important to study a few things deeply, even to mastery, rather than to dabble and sample dozens of things simultaneously. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, while recounting his junior high education. He writes, In those days, a boy on the classical side officially did almost nothing but classics. I think that this was wise. The greatest service we can do to education today is to teach fewer subjects. Now, let me just pause here for a moment to let the reader and viewer know that I am quoting C.S. Lewis. So, if you are tempted to disagree with me, just note that you are also disagreeing with C.S. Lewis. If I'm going to hide behind some figure, he's a good figure to hide behind. So let me repeat that last line. I think this was wise. The greatest service we can do to education today is to teach fewer subjects. No one has time to do more than a very few things well before he is 20. And when we force a boy to be a mediocrity in a dozen subjects, we destroy his standards, perhaps for life. Smugi, that's his Latin teacher, taught us Latin and Greek, but everything else came in incidentally. Lewis here is saying that we could actually damage or destroy the standards of a student as a learner for the rest of his life. This is something, therefore, that I think is important and worth really thinking about. He says that, by learning Latin and Greek, everything else could come in incidentally. Now, we don't have to make an argument right now that we should only do Latin and Greek, but you understand the principle. We should be studying fewer subjects and studying them well. We should go deep with fewer subjects. We should dig deep wells, multum non multa, much, not many. Studying and learning well is more akin to building a house than to strolling through a buffet line. A foundation must be laid, and laid very well. It's no good doing much of anything else until a solid foundation has been dug and poured. You can't start with the roof. Then we turn our attention to framing, then to wiring and plumbing, then to exterior walls, windows, and a roof, and last, to interior walls, flooring, and finishing work. There's a natural sequence or order to building a house, and each stage in the sequence requires mastery for a lovely, strong home to exist, mastering each step. The sequence matters. No one can start building with a roof, 
mastery matters, a poor foundation will risk destroying the entire edifice. And I think this is what Lewis means when he says if we impart mediocrity to students at the beginning, we damage their foundation for everything else that follows. I'm sure that to you, the reader or viewer, the analogy is obvious. In elementary school, we should teach the foundations. In primary school, we should teach what should come first, what is, well, primary. And in secondary school, we should teach what comes second or after what is primary. Higher education should follow secondary education and so forth. There is a proper sequence. We know this and our educational vocabulary signals it. Yet we don't follow this wisdom well. How can a secondary high school student reasonably track 10 to 12 subjects across an eight-period day without dabbling? After all, as Lewis says, no one has time to do more than a very few things well before he is 20. How many of us, looking back on our own secondary and college educations, realize that we mostly dabbled? And we mostly have forgotten all of our dabbling. We're not even a jack of all trades, but instead commonly a master of none. Why then are we so comfortable having our children do just as we did? Even AP high school courses, despite granting students high school and possibly college credits, are often not much more than another kind of rapid-paced dabbling. Students who read, say, 23 novels in an AP English course in a given year may get to skip English 101 in college, but many have not digested or grown to love the books they raced through in high school. Cliff notes and spark notes are quite popular with such students, as we all know, but surely reinforce our dalliance with literature. Classical schools, like other modern schools, generally follow a curriculum that, according to Lewis, dabbles far too much. Our graduates really don't know Latin. Many of them don't do math or study literature, history, math, or science. Incidentally, there is usually no room for any of this incidental or accidental learning because we fill students every hour with all matter of what becomes academic stuff. Sadly, loves are not cultivated by rapid sampling or drive-through courses of study or by simply asking students to pile their plates high with great heaping helpings of the true good and beautiful. We have a phrase to the effect that one's eyes can be too big for one's stomach. In contemporary classical education, I fear that our eyes are too big for our students' souls. We dish it up eight periods a day with eight different enthusiastic chefs serving large amounts of what we know our students will want and love. They, however, have had enough. There is such a thing as too much of a good thing. Well, I've exaggerated a bit to make a point, hoping that the point will reach its mark. Some schools employ block scheduling and have dialed back the number of subjects students must track, which I think is good. And yes, some students can manage our rigorous schedules and curricula. 
a small percentage do, and they don't burn out. And this may justify us in thinking, well, why can't the rest of the students do what the 5 or 10% seem to be able to do? Many, however, most, however, perhaps, burn out or lose their passion for study. To those of you still chafing under my critique, well, I chafe too. I find myself, however, compelled by Lewis and the classical tradition that knows little of our wide curriculum and seven or eight period day. What I think we should do in response, well, that'll have to wait for some additional writing and talking from me and others. But in the meantime, I do look forward to your thoughts, suggestions, ideas, and criticism. Please feel free to go to christopherperrin.substack.com and offer me those. I would really appreciate it. And thanks once again for either viewing or listening to The Christopher Perrin Show. I'd like to thank you for watching or listening to The Christopher Perrin Show. And to do that, I can give you a coupon code that will give you 10% off on anything that you might care to order at classicalacademicpress.com. And the coupon code is simply CPSHOW. Thanks again for listening or watching.